Hello, I'm Linda Huey, and this is Meet the Doctors, the show that lets you hear what doctors have to say about their lives, their work, their passions, and what they foresee for the future. Today's guest is plastic and reconstructive surgeon Dr. David Culber at Cedars-Sinai. He has created functional hands for a young boy whose hands were totally disfigured, and he has helped perform remote surgeries in Mozambique using Google Glass. This episode of Meet the Doctors is brought to you by Complete PT Pool and Land Physical Therapy. Whether you're trying to prevent knee surgery or recovering from shoulder, hip, or back pain, Complete PT offers you the most advanced pool therapy in combination with traditional land therapy. You don't need to know how to swim or even get your hair wet. The 92-degree saltwater pool soothes joints and muscles and helps reduce pain immediately. Visit CompletePT.com. That's CompletePT.com. I can't wait for you to meet this amazing reconstructive surgeon, Dr. David Culber. I'm here with Dr. Culber, the director of the Cedars-Sinai Center for Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and the director of Hand and Upper Extremity Surgery. Welcome to Meet the Doctors. Well, thank you for having me. Yes. I read so much about you, and I've watched a lot of stuff about you on YouTube, I suppose it is, probably, because it's video that I see from appearances that you've made in different places. And although I usually start every show with finding out someone's background first, I want to start right off with one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard of the young boy in Africa who didn't really have two hands, and now he does. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, that was an incredible story. There is a doctor um, who works in Africa, Rick Hodes, who is from Los Angeles and went to USC and felt he wasn't doing enough for the world. And he moved to Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, um, to take care of uh, mainly people there who are, don't have very much, especially children. And they, there was actually a documentary done by him um, on HBO called Making the Crooked Straight, which mm-hmm. I recommend seeing because mm-hmm. it's an amazing documentary. So he came across this boy who um, had been placed in Mother Teresa's home, and he had huge tumors on his hands that were like bowling balls, and they were going to amputate his hands. And he didn't know what else to do. And if they were going to amputate his hands, he would die in Ethiopia because a person without hands really um, can't survive. Can't Um, even feed themselves, really. Correct. And they're they're looked at as as pariahs because— People are scared of them. They think they have mm-hmm. some like spiritual issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so and I saw the video. I just have to, I, I just have to tell people that when you say bowling balls, what I'm going to say, it's like five times the size of a hand, but it's like a big mound of flesh with no real shape and no fingers. Yeah, I mean, you could kind of see the fingers coming out at the very tip of the bowling ball or the the flesh, mm-hmm. but um, it did not look like anything that would resemble a no, hand. No, not at all. And it's a disease called Allais disease, which is enchondroma, which are cartilaginous tumors. Okay, we got to start. What was the name of the disease? Um, Oleas. Oleas. And it is um, cartilaginous tumors of the hand, which are the, the cartilage just goes crazy and just keeps growing and growing and growing and forms like large tumors. And you say somewhere along the line in that same video that the tumors dissol- disintegrated the bones. Correct. They break through the bones and make them, they just fracture through them. And this is something people get enchondromas 
um, which this this is what type of tumor it is. An enchondroma. An enchondroma, which mm-hmm. is a cartilaginous tumor. And usually they're just isolated to one bone. And it's very common in the United States to see somebody with a small tumor like this. But this is like something that is just exploded. Mm-hmm. And um, when we brought him over here... How do they how do they find out find you and get make so the contact Rick you? So Rick Hode somehow through people found me through um, a charitable organization, and um, he sent me the photos and asked me if I thought we could help him. And at the time, I was I was a little younger and more brash, and you know, thinking I could do anything. <laughs> um, and I said, "Sure, that let's we could fix this." Oh wow! And, I'm glad you said that yeah. because that child. Now has a life. But when I saw him, I didn't know if we could. And we ended up doing the surgeries on him, several surgeries over time, but one really large surgery in each hand. And it's an amazing story because not only did he get his hands back, he became part of a community. All these mothers from Malibu took care of him. He went to school in oh, Malibu. Oh, sweet. And then it became very dangerous for him to go. He went to school in Addis Ababa for the first time because he'd never gone to school. He wasn't he, allowed there or he was afraid to go? He wasn't allowed there, mm-hmm. allowed to go there. But once we fixed his hands, he could go to school mm-hmm. there. And we had to we had to wait for him to grow up and get bigger to do some of the other surgeries because um, he had to get more skeletal maturity. And by the time we got to that, he... Um, couldn't really stay in Addis Ababa. It was very, he got beaten up. It was very unsafe for him due to some social unrest and him knowing, kids knowing that he went to America. Oh, and so and they what, were jealous, huh? Yeah. And so what ended up happening is that uh, some of the mothers got a political asylum for him. And my sister, whose kids had um, already gone to college and had graduated, she took him into her house. My goodness. And uh, this kid hit the lottery. Yeah, and well, he's an amazing kid. He did a TED talk, but um, he went to Westlake High School in My the goodness. valley, um, graduated, and some other people got together to help send him to college. And he's going to Azusa College now, and he wants to give back and become an engineer to make hands. Oh. And so it's a great story, and he's a wonderful human being. It goes full circle. He's going to make hands. Yes. Oh, you made his hands, and now he's going to make yeah, hands. Yeah, and you know, it's the kind of thing where, while I helped him, he actually gave me more in the sense of um, feeling like I really did something good and um, a, a sense of fulfillment. And it really, that turned my attentions to do more charitable things like that on a, a bigger scale. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, But it was, that was the first like impact that I felt. Like it was a global impact. Yeah. Well, I've watched that. I've watched that video four times now because I just want to see that child smile. He was only eight or ten at that point. Yes. Yeah. And now he's in college. Now he's in college. Yeah. <laughs> makes, I didn't know the video was that old. Yeah. I mean, and it makes me feel older, but uh, <laughs> it's it's a it's a great story, and it it's is. it's how like for us as doctors and as, as being part of like the United States of America being global leaders and giving back to the world yeah. um, on, on a uh, one kid at a time. Well, we'll get back to all of that in a moment because I like to go back and let's start at the beginning. Where were you born and raised? So I was born in Chicago but grew up in Los Angeles in the Valley. A Valley guy. I'm a Valley guy, yeah. That's why you have a surfboard in your office. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Okay. Now, I was looking at your CV, and it's 19 pages long, and the... 
depth and the breadth of what you're really good at and what you've published and written and presented and traveled to do, it's it's not just in fields of hands. It's it's through the whole body, basically, except maybe the brain and the spinal column. <laughs> but other than that, you work, you've worked on every part of the body. It's, it was impossible for me to fully prepare for this. So I'd like us to start with one of the publications that you did last December, and it was in PRS Global Opens. PRS stands for Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. You fit a Google Glass headset over your surgical loops, which are basically magnifying lenses. And then tell me what you were able to do. You were the one mentor here, a mentor surgeon, and you had two field surgeons in Mozambique. And can you explain what that what you yeah. were Yeah. Um, so I started going to Mozambique um, about nine years ago to um, take care of kids and, and people and teach surgeons, um, plastic surgeons there uh, to operate because Mozambique only has... Now, they, at the time, they only had one. Now they have three plastic surgeons for a country of 30 million people. And it's kind of crazy. It's like we have 30 million plastic surgeons here in Beverly Hills yes. for like a couple. It's com to totally inverse. inverse. But um, I, I went there to really have a bigger impact, a global impact. And through um, UCLA Global Health and my friend Lee Miller um, and my friend Matt Bernstein, who's here at, was here at Cedars, they had gone there and they said they really need the plastic surgery training and you could have a huge impact on this country. And so I went there several years in a row and I, and it was great. But I realized that once you leave, they revert back to the norm, like everything that you've taught them because it's so difficult to work there. There's so many things and hurdles they have to get over to just do patient care that they yeah. just do what's ever easiest. And they don't really, you know, they they just forget everything you learn because it's just like learning here. Like being a resident, you have to have constant learning and reinforce the learning for you to um, really get it. And this one surgeon, Pedro Santos, um, and this other one, um, they, they'd failed their boards. They There's an African board, and um, Pedro had taken it twice and it failed. And so I, if you, you fail again the third time, then you have to go to, you have to go back to training. And he can't afford to go back to training. Mm -hmm. So I came across the Google Glass, and we had some experience with it. Uh, but then there's this new uh, technology called Expert Eye that this French company created that gives you live streaming that is very efficient and reproducible so that someone can put on gl smart glasses. We use, view they're called Vuzix glasses now, not Google Glass. Mm -hmm. Because um, they're better glasses now, but at the time we used Google glasses, and that Pedro could wear the glasses in Mozambique over his loops, and I could see exactly what he's seeing in the operating room. Okay. And then he could see me in the glasses, and then I could take a picture of what he's looking at and draw on it, and he could see what I'm doing and drawing on it, and I can give him instructions of where to cut and how to operate and what to do here and there, and he could literally see it in his glasses while he's operating. So it's amazing. Could, Who taught you what you could do on this end that they could see? How did you guys set it up, and how did they learn what they were doing on their end? Yeah, so we initially did it where we brought the glasses out there, and we did uh -huh. try. So on one of my missions, we brought the glasses. In person. We practiced doing it in the operating room. We'd practice where I'd be in a room outside the operating room giving him instruction while he was just on the other side of the door. And we went through a lot <laughs> That's good. of the... Um, 
trials and errors, one of the problems was the lighting because the OR lights would drown out the photo oh, and, sure. and they didn't have a great solution. So we had to figure out, get, get lenses for that. So it happens like one of my friends, he's a director, Jay Roach, who people know. Um, and Jay figured out, he said, well, I have a solution. Just we can get the um, better lenses like that we do for cameras that we when we film to like filters and filter it out. So we brought all these lenses there to Mozambique and we figured out the mm. right filter. And it took a long, it took like a couple of days to get the right filter to do it. And then we had the filters made. Jay actually had the filter made. And then we brought them back there. Nice. And now we have the technology of being able to see in the operating room really well what he's looking at. And the technology for Xperide has improved. So uh, we have a lot better clarity and focus. And um, it's been a great teaching experience. And Pedro, ultimately, over this year, we did this. And I continued to work with him a couple times um, at least a couple times a month, some three or four times a month going over things. We'd also examine patients while wow. he's wearing the glasses so he can examine patients pre and postoperatively. So he gets your input on what's happening there. Yes. And once we um, did that, I felt like we could really create an educational program with him. And after that one year, he took the boards again and not only did he pass, he got the second highest score uh, of all of Africa. He had been tutored by you for how long? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's quite an amazing... But it, yeah, it just it was one of those things where it just felt right. And it was the right use of this technology. Yeah. And you advanced the technology by bringing in someone who could get filters and and get the lighting right. That wouldn't have been happening if someone really, an expert, hadn't known what to do about that. No, I mean, it's, it takes a village in yeah. this kind of thing, and that's what it did. And it, it, and it works so well, we wrote a paper on it because we're hoping um, through our organization, um, we started a nonprofit called Ohana One, and we're really into global surgical education. And what we realized is that it's great when we go out to these countries to help people and teach doctors. But if you don't constantly re reinforce it, then it's not as effective. So, and it's hard now to send out doctors constantly to countries. Yeah. The travel to find doctors who have the time to do that. But you could do it remotely where you could not leave your own home and still have an impact. And that's the concept of our um, non-for-profit Ohana One is global education and using this remote surgical uh, training. Well, are you recruiting other doctors who, like, I'm thinking of one from Haiti that I know that I'm interviewing next week here at Cedars, and he goes to Haiti every year. Um, yeah, we're so we're partnering with other organizations and other doctors to start using this technology and just improve the um, educational outcome and reinforce it. And so now that we've been successful with it, and we wrote this paper on it, yes. we want to um, now roll it out to other organizations and partner with them. Yeah, I looked at the paper. I think, did you have 14 surgeries and they all went well? Yes. All of them. That's, yes. a, that's a very good outcome. It was, it was, it went very, yeah, very happy about the yeah, outcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, no wonder you wanted to publish that one. That was just in December. Have you had much reaction? Well, we're just starting to roll it out now. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of reaction. I've met with a lot of other non-for-profits to start using this technology. And I've, we've met with Expert Eye. 
the people who make the platform mm -hmm. to partner with them to roll it out for um, healthcare. Sounds so exciting. Stick around. You'll get to hear more with Dr. Culber right after this. If you're in the market for a bike, you want to buy your bike from a shop that has great service. Bicycles need to be serviced and maintained on a regular basis for safety. You want a relationship you can count on with the shop where you buy your bike. Helen's cares as much about servicing your bike and keeping you safe as it does about the sale of a new bike. Their tune-up packages and excellent repair service will keep your bike in perfect working order. Go to HelenCycles.com. That's HelenCycles.com. We're back with Dr. David Culber. Let's go back to your college education. I saw that you went to Cal Berkeley, and you majored in European and medical history. Yes. What was that like? Um, it was great. I mean, at the time, Berkeley had the best history department in the country. Hmm. And um, I felt like, for me, being a doctor, I knew I'd be doing sciences the rest of my life. So I really wanted to do something more um, art-related, arts and sciences. I, I, I've always been artistically inclined. Mm -hmm. um, I play the piano. I like to paint. Uh -huh. um, and um, I play the drums. So I'm very more music and artsy rather than science. I always felt like science was really tough for me, like physics. It was like the devil for me, uh, very hard. And so, But I found history to be very enjoyable. I have for whatever reason, I had a very uh, strong interest in French history. And um, it turned out I married a French woman and, <laughs> and I've got French kids. But um, I found that French history, especially during the um, late 1700s and 1800s, where I wrote my thesis on, um, was really interesting. So it was the, really the center of medicine at that time, where surgery started. It was People were doing surgery before anesthesia was invented. Is and, bite on a stick or something. Yeah, huh? and they were doing like massive surgeries. Um, this guy, um, Dubitron, mm -hmm. who is named after the contracture of the hand, but he did multiple surgeries on the brain, um, on the chest. No one had ever done any of these things before because it was at a time when the Napoleonic era where um, before you couldn't do like study cadavers because it was sacrilegious uh -huh. and you'd get killed. But ah. during Napoleon's time, they allowed... Um, doctors to actually do anatomic dissections, and you weren't killed for it. And so that really advanced science and the ability to do surgery and the understanding of anatomy. So it was a very golden time of surgery. And it's very interesting, actually, both of the um, Warrens who started the Mass General, the father and the son, both trained in France with Dubitrin. And then they went on after the advent of anesthesia to advance surgery in, um, at Mass General. When did... Uh Anesthesia began here. Really, anesthesia didn't start until like the 1820s, 1830s. Yeah. And before that, um, in the late 1700s, surgeons, surgeries were being done just on the kitchen table. They and, didn't know about um, bacteria yet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and the Lister's, Lister's um, idea of antisepsis was probably in the 1820s. And then anesthesia followed after that. And um, it just happened that while I was at Berkeley, there's a very famous French philosopher, Michel Foucault, who wrote a book called The Birth of the Clinic, and how the clinic started was a visiting professor at Berkeley um, then. And so I got to meet with him and use him, and he helped me write my honors thesis on French medical history. You were in the right place at the right time to really get the right stuff from 
an arts degree. <laughs> yes, it was very lucky. Yeah, it was a good experience. Yeah. Sometime during your college year, was it after you graduated from college, you spent three months in India? Yeah, so um, I graduated college early, and I had like a like about five months to kill and before um, medical school. And so me and my friend, um, we traveled around the world. We got like a North uh, Western Airlines or um, uh, global pass, and as long as we were moving forward, we were okay. I remember those. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And um, he went to Haverford, and um, Aaron Levy, and he had all these, you know, all these girls from Bryn Mawr whose fathers were diplomats. So every country we went to, we knew a girl. <laughs> it can't get better than that. And um, and we and they and a diplomat like in Thailand and India. And so we spent um, you know several months in India, just traveling across the whole. Um, country taking a train. Um, uh, um, it was sleeping in train stations, and um, it was an amazing experience. Now, I've been to India, but I don't know that I would take a train and sleep in train stations. Yeah, well, when you're like, you know, 20 years old, yeah. it seems like you could do that. And yeah. now it'd be a little more difficult. Yeah, yeah. But it, at the same time, it sounds like it might have been what awakened your mindset that we live in the comfortable countries and... Um, there are a lot of countries that are not comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I'd grown up in the valley, very sheltered life in you know the San Fernando Valley, and um, never really traveled that much. And if I did, it was like a place like Hawaii, and, <laughs> right? Baja, you know, California. Yeah. yeah. So um, going to a place like India was just mind blowing for right. me. I just couldn't mm -hmm. even comprehend how we could have so much and they had so little, mm -hmm. and how like you could see like kids like um who like had a sparkle in their eye but they were like selling things and working because they couldn't go to school because of the caste system and right. just the way that country's organized and it really was very um it was it was mind-blowing for me um and it made me feel like you know immediately someday i have to give back mm -hmm. and um try to you know deal with this inequality that i just couldn't comprehend and we've already heard how much you have been doing that but I'm wondering, did you go back to Chicago Medical School because you're from Chicago? Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's where my father went. My father's a doctor, and he went to medical school there. What kind of a doctor is and he? He was an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Uh -huh. He's retired since. But, yeah, so it just seemed very natural to, to go there. And then you came back to L.A. to do your residency at Cedars. Yes. I mean, at the time, I wasn't sure what kind of—I I was more— aimed at wanting to be a um, cardiac surgeon. Hmm. Um, my grandfather, um, who's one of my, my best friend, mm -hmm. he had one of the first bypass surgeries at Cedars-Sinai. He was visiting us from Cleveland, Ohio. And at the Cleveland Clinic at the time told him he was non-operative because they just started doing bypasses. And he had a heart attack. And if he didn't have a bypass, he was going to die. And so he had a bypass emergency one at Cedars. Wow. And I remember walking through the doors of the ICU, seeing my grandfather alive, and thinking to myself, one day I'm going to be a doctor at this hospital. Ah. And, um, and, you know, and I am. But I, <laughs> but I thought it would be a heart surgeon. And I really like the technical, you know, it's very highly technical doing heart surgery. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, and I'd done a lot of research um, in the Swan Gans lab, who invented this catheter, Cedars is very famous for it to measure the heart flow. Okay. And then angioplasties. I was working in the lab doing that. And that what? Please explain and what that is. Angioplasty is where you put a balloon in the heart and you dilate 
the coronary artery so you could get more blood. And it used to be that you had to bypass to do a surgery to take a vein to bypass around the blockage. But then when they realized you could put a balloon in, <laughs> that might work as well. And then I was doing, using the eczema laser to laser some of the plaques. And a plaque and is a, just a clog. It's a clog mm -hmm. in the artery. Mm -hmm. And then um, realizing it worked it means that the heart surgeons aren't going to be as busy because some of the balloon angioplasties, putting the balloon and dilating the arteries works well. Oh, so you saw that feel sort of diminishing and you, I didn't, did. and you tried, decided to go a different route. Well, I just felt like I wanted to do something more creative because mm -hmm. I think that, that that operation, while amazing and saves people lives, um, you do the same type of operation. And for me, I just felt like I wanted to do something where I'm inventing operations and pushing yeah. the field a little further. It just had something in me that wanted to do more. And I had a couple mentors and I, it kind of pushed me in the direction of plastic surgery because plastic means to like plasticose, which is to create or to shape. And it just seemed more natural to want to go to a field that allowed you to um, develop things. And Joe Murray was one of the visiting professors at Cedars-Sinai. And Joe Murray is a surgeon. He's since passed away, but he's from Mass General. And he won the Nobel Prize. And he won it for doing the first kidney transplant. Ah. And he was a plastic surgeon. And oh, no wonder you've crossed over into all fields. You saw your mentors doing yeah, it. Yeah, and he was here visiting, and I met with him. And he said, yeah, you should go into plastic surgery because it allows you to create things and invent things like the area of the whole field of transplantation was invented by him. And the field of like microsurgery, Harry Bunky, who's up in San Francisco, who's a plastic surgeon. And so they, plastic surgeons have invented a lot of fields because they just take problem. It's more of problem solving. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks of plastic surgery as cosmetic surgery and breast augmentation. But in fact, the field really came from to deal with problems um, beyond what general surgery taught you. And that's and plastic surgery was really just an extension of general surgery, dealing with difficult problems and problem solving. Being able to reconstruct something that looks like it's a mess. How am I going to fix this? Right. Yes. Yeah. And then they call on someone like you. Correct. Yes. But then you did another residency at the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center. How many people do more than one residency? Yeah. I mean, when you feel like you just need to learn more. When you have a when you have a fear of glutton for punishment. Uh, <laughs> craving for knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> craving for knowledge and the glutton for punishment. So after I finished general surgery, at the time, if you wanted to be a plastic surgeon and go to a really good program, you had to have finished a full training in general surgery. So I finished my full training in general surgery here at Cedars. Then I did another two years of plastic surgery training at New York Hospital. And it was there where I realized that I, um, I did rotations at the hospital for special surgery and yeah. hand surgery. And I really like that because it's like highly technical. Um, you have to be really precise to be a hand surgeon. You can't fake it. It's either either works or it doesn't. And I, I found that that was very similar to heart surgery because it's very highly technical. Um, but one, people don't die from hand surgery most of the time, like heart <laughs> no, surgery. No. And you're restoring someone's a function to someone, which really has a huge impact on their life. So um, then I went on and did a hand fellowship at NYU. So you've been educated for how many years total, would you say? Yeah. So, I mean, college, medical school, five years of general surgery, two years of plastic surgery. 10, 11. Surgery. 
a year of twelve um, hand surgery, and then I went in Europe and worked a little bit at the Children's Hospital, Great Ormond Street in England, um, which was an amazing experience. I got to meet Princess Diana, who's a sponsor oh, of that hospital. Oh. Then I worked in um, the Clinic Juvenet in mm-hmm. France, which is a um, Institut de Le Mans, which is a hand clinic with very innovative surgeons, and and also met my wife there in France. Um, <laughs> So it was a great experience. Well, and you speak some French, obviously. Good thing since you have a French wife. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> okay. So was it the weather or the fact that you saw your grandfather in the ICU and said, I'm going to be a surgeon back at Cedars? Is that why you came back yeah, to Cedars? I think it was um, part of it that I, my family was from California. Um, and someone who I really respected, Miles Cohen, who mm-hmm. was my mentor, Um, was here. And after meeting with him, he um, offered me to come back to Los Angeles. And I was like, it was like a dream come true to get to work with someone who you thought was an amazing person and a mentor. And um, it was great. And when I when I came back to work here with him, um, he said he was going to be in practice for about three years and then retire. And then luckily for me, he stayed in practice for another 20 years and just (laughs) retired last year. You know, he was always known as the hand surgeon in Los Angeles. And so the fact that he was your mentor means that you're right up there of his caliber. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I mean, um, I had the opportunity to work with him for over 20 years and learn mm-hmm, from him. Mm-hmm. And it was a great experience for me. And it was what I was hoping to do. Because um, when you get out of all your training, you're just still, there's a lot to learn. And to have someone like, like Miles Cohen be the guy to oversee was amazing. So that you could say, I'm doing this surgery tomorrow, and I have one concern. What should I do about this? Yeah, and to have someone like who's already been doing it for you know a gazillion years <laughs> and has the utmost experience and um, is technically one of the best surgeons I've ever seen give you advice is just amazing. It's, it just elevates you to a different level and very quickly. Yeah. Well, lucky you. Now, another paper that you published in March of 2017, it was about a new surgery using the knee meniscus from a cadaver to reconstruct finger and wrist joints. Was that your idea? Yeah. I mean, really um, crazy how some of these innovations in medicine occur. Uh, So I got involved in being on the board of the Muscular Transplant Foundation, MTF Biologics, which is the largest tissue bank in the world. I did some research really with breast reconstruction using um, uh, a cellular dermal matrix to reconstruct breasts. Okay, you're going to have to define what that is. And that's is. like der- it's cadaver dermis. And you use dermis that, is skin the tissue. skin tissue. Mm-hmm. And you use that to, to really act as a sling to hold an implant in place after a patient has a mastectomy. And so I got involved in this company through that, through the plastic surgical component, because we were one of the first people to use this and do breast reconstruction, which now... Almost all breast reconstructions have some form of a dermal matrix as part of the reconstructive process. And the matrix is like a... The cadaver dermis. Yeah, okay. Cadaver dermis, which is like part of the skin, the thick part of the skin. And being involved in this company, I got involved in the research and development component of it. I just happened to have a patient who was an artist, a big guy who loved to sail, who had severe arthritis of his third digit. And he couldn't hold anything. He was in severe pain. Mm. And Third digit is third finger. It's the third finger. Mm-hmm. And the typical treatment for that would be to fuse the finger so it wouldn't move. 
Um, the other treatment would be using a silastic implant. But in someone like him, it would have failed in a matter of a few years because it would wear down very quickly because he's such a big guy. What's a silastic implant? It's like a piece of like plastic, essentially, and you put it in the joint, and it acts like a spacer. Okay. But they don't last very long. And um, for joint implants in the hand and the wrist and the fingers, they, they we haven't really found a great implant that works well. They break very easily because of the forces on the hand, and um, they wear down very quickly. So how did you get this idea? So I was in um, Edison, New Jersey, where MTF is located, and going through the lab, just they show me different things that they have, and I saw, like, this meniscus. And I'm like, well, like, meniscus is fibrocartilage, mm-hmm. and, like, our joints are made of hyaline cartilage. Right. Hyaline cartilage is very fragile. It breaks easy. So when you, like, break your wrist or your finger – and if it's involving the hyaline cartilage, it wears down and it just dies. Mm-hmm. And the same thing in the in our knees um, and our hips. It's all lined with hyaline cartilage, which isn't really made to survive past like 70 or 80 years. And fibrocartilage is very hardy and it doesn't break down. And I was noticing as we were looking through the fibrocartilage at MTF that if you're like 90 years old and if you haven't injured your meniscus, your fibrocartilage looks pretty good. It's still mm-hmm. in pretty good shape because it wears very well. It doesn't require a lot of nutrition. It's very hardy. You can't break it. And I'm thinking to myself, this is probably even better to line a joint than hyaline cartilage. And so my patient told me, look, doc, if you figure out something outside of the box, think outside of the box, do something crazy, I'll do it because I'm not fusing my finger. <laughs> I'm not going to have a joint, you know, a fake joint place because I know it won't work. So if you figure out something, I'll I'll do it. I'll be your guinea pig. And so I thought to myself, well, I could reline it with this cadaver meniscus and I could just reline the joint with that. And I think I thought that I could use the stem cells from the bone. So you like go into the medullary canal of the bone. Kind of the cadaver? No, of the of person. The person himself, yeah. okay. And you expose their bone cells. The, the, mm-hmm. the inside of the bone has all these stem cells. Right. And it can do all these great things, but you have to expose it. Typically, when you do that, you're going down one-way street because if the surgery doesn't work, you know, it's going to be a failure. But in this case, he was going to get a fusion anyways, yeah. so he had nothing to lose to do this. So I, I devised this operation where we sutured the meniscus into the medullary bone where the stem cells could grow into it. And it created a new joint that was his own. That became part of him. Well, what, where was it? Was it like the middle joint? Was it was it the middle joint of his third, third finger. Third finger over the okay. metacarpal, like the knuckle. Yeah. It was the, the knuckle, knuckle that you would hit if you hit a wall. Yes. Okay. So it's the third knuckle. Mm-hmm. And um, that was about eight or nine years ago. Um, I follow up with him every year. He's sailing. He's doing his art. It looks great. He's had no complications, and it's um, it's amazing. It becomes part of you. So we did some research on that. We operated on pigs to see how it worked because now I did it in a person. Now we <laughs> we started out. with the person instead yeah. of an animal. It's a complete reverse <laughs> um, reverse uh, technology here where now we have to figure out, okay, it worked. How, how does it work? Why does it work? And how can we prove that it works? And, yeah, and um, – <laughs> So we figured out the technology of it and, and what's the, the sweet spot of why it works and how to shape the meniscus to make it work. And since that time, I've done multiple joints in the hand, um, the wrist, and um, 
we're kind of beginning to roll it out as a new emerging technology. Uh, and we've just finished a prospective study on it on patients. And has anybody followed your lead on this yet, or are you the only one doing it? Well, so a couple people like my friend in um, hand surgery at Mount Sinai, Michael Hausman's done a few of them. And I haven't really rolled it out as a teaching um, because part of it is that the you have to shape the meniscus, and that's technically very difficult. So I'm working with a company, MTF, mm-hmm. to shape the meniscus. So then it just comes prepackaged so people could use it. It'll just be something that they buy, like an allograph. Yeah, but uh-huh. like a, a preformed allograph. So uh-huh. that's the technology yeah. that we've been working on now that I know that it works really well. And so over next year, I'll be like, we'll have a paper written on it, and I'll give a course on how to use it. Um, but it will be easily packaged, so it'll be easy for the surgeon to use. Because right now, I'm making it myself on the back table. And, and you're making it to fit the exact, it's custom made for the exact joint that you're working with. Yes. So mm-hmm. we're, we're working on technology that will make it custom available so no one, someone could just put it in and suture it in place. In different sizes, I would yes. expect. And you just eyeball it for now? Uh, yes. It's like an <laughs> artist eyeball. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So you've been trained to do so many different kinds of surgeries. I'm wondering, have you begun to focus more on the hands, or do you still like to do it all? I like to do things that are challenging at this point that require, like, innovation, and I still like to do regular surgeries. What do you consider Um, regular surgeries? Like a a breast reduction. Things that make people happy, that improve their quality of life. Um, And, you know, every now and then I'll do some cosmetic surgery, but it's definitely (laughs) not my bigger focus no. um, just because I, I have this sense that I really want to, if, if I think it would improve someone's quality of life and make a big difference for them, because that's really what I'm interested in is just improving people's quality of life and their function. And it has a ripple effect that if you help somebody out, that person helps someone else out. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're helping someone out who can now function better or do things better, that ripples their family and everyone around them. And that's kind of how I look at it. Wow. Amazing philosophy, amazing doctor. I can't thank you enough for agreeing to be on my show, Meet the Doctors, but thank you. I really appreciate your time, your energy, your enthusiasm. It's very exciting. Well, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, Thank you for having me. (laughs) My pleasure. You've been listening to an incredible conversation with Dr. David Culber from Cedars-Sinai. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode as we speak with the brightest minds in medicine, research, surgery, and much, much more. I'm Linda Huey. You can tweet to me on Twitter at Linda Huey. That's L-Y-N-D-A-H-U-E-Y. Say hi or tell me who you'd like to hear on Meet the Doctors. Thanks to production assistant James Cowan and to Tom Struther for audio post-production.